Hello, and welcome to Asia In-Depth. I'm Michelle Flor-Cruz. As countries all over the world continue to grapple with the coronavirus, businesses large and small are struggling to cope with the profound economic consequences of widespread lockdowns. As unemployment surges and demand plummets, trade, supply chains, and investments have taken a nosedive. How bad will things get for the interconnected global economy? What will it take to get countries and companies back on track? In this episode, former executive director of Asia Society Southern California and journalist Jonathan Karp speaks to three investment experts, providing analysis on the economic fallout in Europe, Asia, and North America. John Emerson, the vice chairman of Capital Group International and former U.S. ambassador to Germany, offers perspective from Europe. Dr. Weijian Shan, the chairman and CEO of private equity firm PAG, looks at China. And finally, Howard Marks, co-chairman of Oak Tree Capital Management, evaluates the damage in the U.S. Jonathan Karp begins the conversation by discussing comments Marx has made in the media about how the low market numbers don't yet reflect the extent of damage on the American economy. You know, in some comments that you made yesterday, back when the market was only 15 percent below the peaks, I guess it's a little lower now, you made the comment that that the market is out of step, it's disconnected from the economic reality that we face. And your quote was, if the world is, um, well, you, you said that, that the world is more screwed up than 15%. Um, so I'd like to know if it's more than 15%, how severe is the damage? And does it matter if the contagion, so to speak, that sparked a recession was caused by policy, <clears throat> policy responses to a pandemic rather than a fundamental economic or financial problem, as it was 13 years ago? Well, I hope it's okay with everybody. It'll take me about an hour to answer that question. Everybody else can knock off. But, uh, you know, what I said on CNBC, and I didn't, it, they picked it out as a kind of the quote of the day, was that the market's down 15%, but the world is screwed up more than 15%. And I believe that's true. Uh, you know, if, if, you, if you said to anybody, how much worse is your life today than it was three months ago? How much worse off is the world? Uh, you, you know, you heard Dick's introduction, the litany of the cases and the deaths and the unemployed and the businesses closed. You know, it, it just doesn't feel to me like the world is 85% as good as it was three months ago. Uh, or two months ago when the market hit its all-time high February 19th. Um, now, so I think that's easy. Now, I don't know exactly how, how screwed up the world is. I don't know if it's uh, 25% or 40% or something like that, but it's not, in my opinion, 15. Now, that's, on the other hand, we have the unprecedented government actions, the stimulus, the rescues, the bailouts, and, and the loans, and so forth. And... Um, you know, the, the, the government's very powerful, and uh, it, it obviously is taking the approach that it can spend an infinite amount of money. Uh, there doesn't seem to be any limitation either on the quantum or on its imagination. So, you know, there's an old saying, don't fight the Fed. Uh, maybe the Fed will do whatever it wants, and that is to bring us back. On the third hand, um, we don't know when the economy is going to recover or what it's going to look like. Um, you know, a lot of people think that it'll be back uh, in, let's say, 2021 to where it was in 2019. Some people think it might take until uh, 22. 
I spoke to somebody today who thinks it's going to take uh, until 24, but he's a, a self-acknowledged bear. But the point is, you know, the, the, this is not, the, the, we're not screwed up permanently, I don't think. Um, this is not permanent. We will recover. And so we don't just say, it, there's no calculus that the world is 40% screwed up, so the market should be down 40% because we look at the future and the future certainly includes a recovery. Um, so it's very, very hard to say what's right. I merely was saying that I thought that the, the stock market here is looking at the optimistic case, which of course we may get, but of course we may not. Just one quick follow-up. Um, some people have said that the difference this time around than in 2009 is that they see a path to recovery, like what the path to recovery might be, as opposed to then. Do you share that view? Well, that's, it's funny you should say that, because certainly in, in retrospect, we're worse off now than then. Then the only real concern was a, uh, was a uh, meltdown of the financial system, and it didn't happen. Right. Now we have health issues, uh, collapse of the oil industry, million, you know, 20 odd million out of work, uh, the collapse of the small business sector, the difficulty of the out-of-work people getting jobs back because the small business sector is gone. I think it's a much more complex situation. Uh, we'll bounce back uh, serologically one of these days when there's a vaccine and a test for immunity and so forth. But I think that the economy has been hurt much worse than it was uh, back in 08. Right. Well, thank you. And so that's a good segue to uh, Sean. Um, China's shock treatment uh, contained the coronavirus, but it also resulted in the first quarterly GDP contraction in 40 years. You know, you're based in Asia and, and active in China. What's your assessment um, of the severity of the damage to China's economy near term and, you know, um, well, the immediate damage? Uh, as you know, China was the first to go into the lockdown uh, back in January from the city of Wuhan. It was complete sale-off, shutdown, starting from 23rd of January. And uh, the economic damage during that period of time was quite severe because basically the entire economy was brought to a standstill in other places outside of Hubei province the shutdown was not as severe. People still went to uh, work in some places. But uh, I still remember back in February, a top bank predicted, Wall Street Bank predicted that uh, the Q1 growth for China would be two and a half percent. I sent them a note. I said, don't you see that everything is shut down? How could there be growth if everything is shut down? there could only be decline. And sure enough, of course, in the first quarter, the economic decline was 6.8%. Having said that, however, China went back to work in mid-March, uh, actually around uh, March the 10th. And uh, so March was the month, at least a half of March, people went back to work. And uh, retail sales investments for the month of March also dropped 16%. So the situation in the first quarter, if you look at the statistics, uh, was very bad. But as people went back to work, 
things are coming back very quickly. I just saw the latest data. Of course, the April data are not out as yet, but for the first two weeks of April, electricity production generation went up 1.2% from last year. So that's a very good indicator that the economy is back to uh, production, more or less. More interestingly, electricity consumption, just now I was talking about generation up 1.2%, consumption went up 1.5%. So people have started to consume. Uh, we have a portfolio of uh, about 20 companies in China, which we control or sometimes uh, have very strong influence. And uh, our companies went through a very tough time during the first quarter, but uh, none of them had any survival problems because we had either little or no debt. Uh, and all of them are coming back to work except a kindergarten business which were half opened and will be full open by May the 6th. So uh, I think things are coming back to normal and some sectors are hit much harder than others. You know, if you look at hotels, travel, entertainment, airlines, they're way, way down and there's no question about it. Production I think is back to maybe 95% or even more, but demand is very weak. So I think going forward, it really depends very much on what the government is going to do. You have seen this massive stimulus packages, at least elsewhere in the United States and Europe. China, for all practical purposes, has not done much. And I don't know why they're hesitating so much. So uh, you know how the economy will recover, uh, or for how fast they will recover, I think it depends very much on the government actions, but I would expect that in the next quarter or two, the business or the economy will come back to normal. Wow, that's uh, that's that's very that's very optimistic. Um, let me shift over to John and uh, ask if you could bring in the third leg of the global economic stool, um, Europe, uh, and also talk about how the the difference in the global roles of Europe. U.S. and China since the last financial crisis um, are going to influence the sort of the geopolitical challenges to the global economy. Uh, Europe obviously was um, hadn't quite come out of the global financial crisis. Certainly, a number of countries were struggling. Germany, uh, which came out of it quite well, was actually uh, on the verge of a technical recession before all of this uh, all of this hit. But I think there are several dynamics that are at play in Europe that are uh, both interesting and I think will have great consequence for uh, the, the period, uh, not just that we're in, but once this is uh, all over. Uh, first of all, the role of government is clearly increasing. Uh, we see that not only with these massive uh, sustainability or rescue packages uh, that are being developed, move past its commitment to the balanced budget to uh, look at a deficit of about a half a trillion dollars, France, the EU and the package of it, that it's developing. And of course, as Howard mentioned, the role of the central banks. And what's interesting about this is that for the past three or four years, there's been a, uh, I think, consternation among many uh, commentators about the hollowing out of the center, of the governing center in Europe. 
And yet, if you look at the popularity now, the newfound popularity of Emmanuel Macron and Angela Merkel and her party, uh, there's a possibility of, of almost a return of the governing center. Now, obviously, if people's perception once, this, once we get through this is the government did a good job, that may hold. If not, if their perception is that government let them down, we may see uh, a greater uh, resurgence of populism than what we saw in the wake of the refugee crisis just a couple of years ago. Uh, second issue is uh, there's been a, there is throughout Europe a gravitational pull towards nationalism, uh, especially as it relates to the movement of people. I find it striking that during the refugee crisis, you know, Germany in particular was famously uh, welcoming people. Uh, well, Germany ended up being one of the first countries to close its Schengen borders to outsiders uh, in response to the COVID-19 crisis. And that's something that I think will take a while to, uh, to unwind. Great pressure on the multilateral institutions, particularly the EU. I think it's been well reported. There's a tension between the northern member states and the southern tier states, particularly uh, Italy, Spain, to a lesser extent Greece, uh, about the uh, issue of corona bonds and mutualization of debt. And uh, if, if I'm in Italy, if I'm in Italy, for instance, and the EU doesn't do a better job of coming to help during my time of existential crisis, I'm asking a question after this, well, what, what's the point of belonging to that organization? So I think that the EU has real um, challenges here. What's interesting is Angela Merkel is about to assume the presidency of the European Council. Uh, her presidency was actually gonna focus on the European relationship with China. And in September, they were planning a, a huge EU-China summit. Well, obviously, uh, her agenda has completely been changed, and now it's all going to be about COVID-19 and, uh, and the recovery of the, uh, of the economy there. So that's, uh, that's something to watch. Another issue to keep an eye on is the whole question of privacy. I think anybody who uh, travels to Europe, um, certainly anybody in the technology world is quite aware of uh, a, 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 a stronger uh, protections of privacy, particularly when it comes to digital privacy in, in Europe than uh, even in the United States or other parts of the world, certainly than in Asia. And um, uh, as a result of this, you may see, uh, it'll be very interesting to see, are people willing to uh, give up some of their privacy in exchange for a confidence that government will be able to do a better job of tracking and tracing uh, the progress of a disease like COVID-19. And by the same token, you look at um, what's gonna happen in uh, member states like uh, Hungary, uh, with where, where Orban has effectively used this as an opportunity to uh, increase uh, his authoritarian rule or move more in that direction. Uh, are we going to see with authoritarian regimes around the world, are we going to see uh, a, an excuse being used here to move to more of a surveillance state? And then I think the other question that you have, and this maybe gets to the last, uh, or the other issue we have, and that gets to the last question that you raised there, Jonathan, which is uh, a lot of people in Europe are asking, where's the United States? Right. You know, it's been, uh, it, it's been quite striking uh, the fact that the United States, with the exception of the role the Fed is playing, has been largely absent in helping to fashion a global response to COVID-19 
uh, and in stark contrast to the role that we played in response to the global financial crisis, in response to the Ebola uh, crisis back in 2014, or even remembering back to the Indonesian tsunami and the military presence in terms of uh, uh, American troops helping to rebuild that area and helping in rescue efforts. And uh, the flip side of that, to get to your uh, touching on the three legs of the stool, is China, ironically, because this is the place where, of course, this all started, and, and China deservedly uh, should be criticized for a lack of transparency at the outset on this. Uh, but China has uh, sort of assumed the role of flying, um, you know, uh, PPEs and, uh, uh, and ventilators and all that to other parts of, uh, of the world, including the United States, but certainly, uh, uh, certainly Italy and other places. So, uh, so I think that's going to be a very long-term um, impact of, of all this as well. Right. And I think we can probably get into the sort of the, the, the great powers competition a little later. But on this point that you were talking about, U.S. leadership, Howard, you know, the, the cooperation, collaboration between the United States and China during the financial crisis was, was, was pretty strong, I mean, as well as Japan and other allies. Um, how important, I mean, given that on the political front, there isn't that taste for sort of global coordination. Um, how important and what do you see as the level of co cooperation between the Fed, the Treasury, and the other economic decision makers internationally? How important will that be to the recovery? Well, look, I'm a believer in globalization uh, and uh, I'd rather see more rather than less. But, uh, uh, you know, uh, under the current conditions, we're going to see less. And I think that will, uh, you know, the, the efficiency that comes from globalization and from each country doing for the world what it does best and, and sharing that with the world through trade, uh, I, I think that, that could have helped, but I don't think we're going to have much of that. And, uh, you know, uh, John used some expression, where is the U.S.? And unfortunately, we know, and the U.S. is uh, absenting itself from that role and will continue to do so. And, and interestingly, uh, it, at the same time that it wants to vilify China, and John points out that some criticism is appropriate, um, and, 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 uh, and stiff-arm China, it creates a void that China apparently is glad to fill. And... Uh, China will be stepping up its role in the world uh, through this experience, I think, to its own benefit. And, and Sean, um, I want to go to you because uh, you've been very outspoken um, against the trade war and the, your belief, too, in open markets and how that would benefit uh, China, the U.S., and the, and the world. Um, given these trends and, you know, how do you – do, is there any chance of movement on phase two of the trade war truce? And how do you see economic relations between China and the U.S. in the near term? I don't think that anybody will go back to those economic issues anytime soon. The focus is so much on fighting the virus. And uh, I think before people come out of the lockdown and go back to work, it is difficult for the nations to coordinate their economic policies 
especially physical and monetary policies. So nobody would pay attention to this. And uh, there's blame game going on as well. So under the circumstances, I don't expect any of these countries to sit down to talk about uh, economic recovery. Uh, it's not on the agenda as yet. I think the priority is to dig out of this hole, that is the virus-induced lockdown. And one question that I have in mind, and of course, you know, when you talk about trade, I think this, for example, General Motors applied to the federal government for exemption of some tariffs on imports of Chinese components to build ventilators. You know, tariffs are not good for consumers. They basically pay a duty for buying foreign goods. And in this time, uh, tariffs cost probably about a couple of percentage GDP. It is very good to lower tariffs for all the countries involved, but, but nobody is talking about it. So my question actually to the other two panelists, Howard and John, is you know, how long do you think that the worst will be over for the United States and people will go back to work for the United States and for Europe? Because in China, I know that looking at the data, in fact, I had an interview with Barron's back on March the 8th. And at that time, I called upon the Chinese nation to go back to work. I said, looking at the numbers and looking at the micro numbers I see of our portfolio companies, this is time to go back to work. Uh, it uh, went back to work about a week later than that. But uh, in the US, it seems that some states are agitating to reopen, but to a limited extent, the question is when people will go back to work, because that's the lag we're talking about. I think that these countries probably will lag China for about two to three months, uh, res resuming production and business. But I'm curious just to know from your perspective, how long that will take, because we're all linked in this. I don't think China will do well without Europe and America doing well and vice versa. Well, you know, you, you, you raised two issues there. One is the, the obvious question you just stated about get to work. When are we going to get back to work? And the answer there is I think it's going to happen uh, sporadically in different parts of the country, and it'll be very much a function of testing, uh, where we're way behind, unfortunately, certainly way behind Europe. Germany tests 650,000 people a week. Um, you know, we've maybe done four times that in this entire period of time with four times the population. Uh, but, but clearly there's an anxiousness there. But the second part of your question that I think is actually uh, quite interesting is from a long-term standpoint, we've clearly got three people who are very much globalists and in favor of, uh, of trade. Uh, what's the world going to look like as we're coming out of this? And, you know, on one hand, I think you are going to have uh, companies and governments taking looks at, look at uh, global supply chains. And uh, I think you're also going to see companies looking at the whole concept of just-in-time inventories and whether, you know, it makes sense to bring more manufacturing closer to them and to build up stockpiles, uh, warehouse uh, component parts and equipment that they typically haven't, you know, it's just been a just-in-time inventories has been a wonderful thing for productivity and, and profitability, but that, that may change. But I think the important thing to keep in mind is this whole issue of uh, tariffs and tension on trade doesn't go away if Donald Trump is no longer president. Right. 
in, in point of fact, I think what struck me, I was very involved in the TTIP negotiations in, uh, in Europe. I, I ran the effort to get the Uruguay round of the GATT through Congress when I was in the Clinton White House. Uh, and I was very struck by, uh, in the last three or four years, sort of the, the change in attitude, even in the business community of many towards, uh, towards trade. And let's not forget, if, if, uh, if, if for instance, uh, if Joe Biden wins the presidency, you know, Democrats have typically been reluctant to embrace these big trade deals. You've had Obama and, uh, and Clinton negotiate them, but uh, to the extent they get through Congress, it's with largely Republican votes. The Republican Party has been very much transformed by Donald Trump, particularly on this issue. So I don't see those tensions. They may... We may have, we'll certainly have a different stylistic approach. We may not see the United States getting in a trade fight with everybody simultaneously, but I don't see the tensions disappearing uh, either after this or even with a change in administration. I think that's an important point to keep in mind. Howard, uh, yeah, if you could uh, also answer, uh, you know, respond to Sean's question about how long do you think it will take to get back to work? and and also in light of what John's saying about the, the bigger trade tensions, how might companies, how will you see companies responding to the, the new environment and to the new realities of the shock in supply chains and in labor, quite frankly? Yeah, I think it was Sean said we're about three months behind China and I think that's probably about right. So we, I think that we'll have uh, substantial numbers of people going back to work in roughly June, some in May, some in July, but I think you'll have a substantial number in June. Uh, but the other difference between us and China is that we haven't had the same effective measures. So my, my guess is that, first of all, China did a lot more testing, and uh, my co-panelists discussed the inadequacy of our testing. And the other thing is a lot more uh, social distancing. And people were you know, shut in with, uh, you know, the word that everybody's using is draconian measures. And, and uh, but the great thing about draconian measures is that they, they took sick people out of circulation and kept the healthy people away from the sick people and, uh, and uh, you know, discouraged the spread and the growth of the cases. So uh, when we, if we go back three months after China, I'm sure that we will not have beaten the disease to the same extent, um, unless, of course, there are medical advances in the meantime. And my guess is that we are more likely to have a rekindling of the disease than China. Um, you look at uh, some countries like Singapore and Hong Kong, we've had, you know, they did a good job and they've had a rekindling. So my guess is when people go back to work um, uh, in, in June-ish, especially in states where they've only recently gone to uh, isolation and where they didn't do it uh, in a draconian fashion, my guess is we'll have uh, another spike in, in the disease, which is unfortunate. Right. Um, now, you asked about company behavior. And, uh, of course, I think that there will be a little less uh, just in time, as John said, um, and uh, a little more uh, uh, looking for uh, manufacturing facilities closer to home. 
But I, th I don't think so much, because I think that you're going to need a, a continued reliance on low-cost manufacturing for components and a continued reliance on just-in-time for economies. And so, you know, uh, maybe nobody's going to cut it as close as they used to, but they'll, I think you'll still see most of it. We're going to take a short break here to talk about Asia Society's celebration of Asian Pacific American Heritage Month throughout May. Our special month-long programming starts on May 3rd with a special digital conversation on the escalating violence and intolerance toward Asian communities following the coronavirus. We'll have perspectives from policymakers, journalists, actors, authors, and student leaders. Guests will include Veep and Farewell actor Tai Ma, pop star Wang Lee Holm, CNN journalist Lisa Ling, and Los Angeles Mayor Eric Garcetti. You can register for the free event at asiasociety.org slash LA Stands Up. That's asiasociety.org slash LA Stands Up. Now let's get back to the conversation. So I want to move to the, the big question of can we afford what it's going to take to arrest the decline and stimulate the economy? It's a number of uh, audience members have asked that as well. And Howard, I'd like to start with you because you've also noted in your memos that uh, there's a certain uh, fantasy land to what you're seeing out of the SEC or the Fed to some extent, how quickly policymakers are changing their red lines. Um, so how would you answer that? Are we going to saddle our children and grandchildren with the kind of downward mobility that some of some young people felt after the financial crisis? Well, Jonathan, this is one of the few things that I have a, a definitive answer to it, and it is who the hell knows. Um, um, you know, uh, when I was a boy, there was a debate about whether it was okay to have national debt. And we seem to have gotten over that. And we've had national debt for a long time, growing in, as a percentage of GDP I into the 20 trillion range. And you might argue without uh, negative effects. Um, now we're gonna have, we're gonna add several trillion. We're run, we were gonna run a trillion dollar deficit in prosperity, which even a Keynesian would think is an odd thing to do. And now it looks like we're gonna have a $4 trillion uh, deficit this year, and we're going to run the, uh, and then we're going to spend many trillions buying securities. Um, and my point is, nobody knows what the impact will be. And we may see an impact in two years, and we may see an impact in 20 years. And it might hit our children or our grandchildren in ways that we cannot imagine now. Uh, so, uh, look, I, it, it all depends on how you look at these things. Are you an optimist or a pessimist? And I've talked a lot about the fact that, 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 that that's what it all comes down to. Uh, and um, uh, that's what it will, uh, will depend on. There is no, what I, what I say to my colleagues is that we all have the same data concerning the present and the same ignorance concerning the future. Nobody, there's no such thing as knowing anything about the future. We know about the future by extrapolating from past patterns but when you have something going on that has never happened before, you can't say you know how it's going to turn out. And I uh, especially think that with regard to all this spending and stimulus and lending and, and, uh, and support. And Sean, you know, you have uh, experience in both the U.S. and China, um, and you've got a Ph.D. in economics. What, what is your feeling about the cost of some of these fiscal um, 
stimulus and well and monetary policy and picking up on a on something you said earlier that you're surprised china hasn't come in more strongly in the market um won't it have to because won't this slow down sort of expose and exacerbate the the corporate debt problem that china was having before coronavirus hit i agree with howard that i was surprised that the us congress was able to pass a package of 2.3 trillion dollars so quickly that represents more than 10% of gdp historically you wouldn't have imagined something like this So I think as long as to follow on what uh, Howard's Howard was saying as long as foreigners have confidence in the dollar and are willing to hold dollar I think printing some money having large deficit having a lot of that probably should be no problem and at this particular moment priority obviously is to save the economy forget about everything else <laughs> if the economy is not saved everything else you know doesn't really matter so i i think the us is following a correct policy to put where the emphasis should be and i think such measures will encourage other countries to loosen up you know just look at china for example its central government debt is only 17% of gdp and it's more than 100% for the united states and 250% for Japan for China is only 17%. You know how much ministry finance has foreign debt is 28 billion dollars. My firm PAG manages 35 billion dollars. So China's central government foreign debt is smaller than the capital I manage and that's how little it is. You know it's negligible in terms of GDP. so they have ample means to loosen they have ample means to borrow in foreign markets they have ample means many tools to stimulate the economy much more so than probably all the other countries all the major economies for some reason i'm little disappointed that they have not really stepped up as yet but i would expect in the next 2 to 3 uh not 2 to 3 weeks uh, hopefully one or two months because they they have a big meeting schedule they may uh they will step up if they look at how weak the demand is and how much you really need to stimulate the consumption in order to pull the economy back to normal and that would be good not only for china but for the rest of the world as china buys from other countries right and and so a a question for all three of you starting with john um because there's a lot of in, uh, interest among the audience is you know sort of anticipating winners and losers so in in the eventual recovery so john maybe if you could look at it by what your and your research at capital is showing about which markets broadly speaking are likely to fare better where where are you seeing the bright spots and what are you guys worried about well the uh, just to close the loop on the past on the previous conversation i i mean i'm struck by sean's uh comparison uh mm-hmm. with uh, what he manages and and china's debt that's uh, that sounds like even a bigger issue than what germany is faced with <laughs> um and i'm also struck by the fact that most of the members of congress must be adherents of modern monetary theory because uh when you think back to the global financial crisis 
and the um, uh, struggle to get the TARP through Congress, to get the paltry by today's standards Obama stimulus package through Congress, you've seen a sea change there. And I think that's a good thing uh, that they, you know, there's a sense that we got to go big and we got to go big quickly uh, to, um, to try to right the economy. You know, in terms of uh, winners, losers, what have you, I think at, you know, capital, we're long-term investors. And, uh, and so there's, uh, I think within portfolios with our analysts and portfolio managers are trying to envision what the world is likely to be like once we do come out of this. And, um, you know, it's, uh, and, and whether, what particular companies are likely to uh, either be badly hurt or, or benefit or have been hurt so badly that uh, they're in fact good, good uh, investments uh, in the long term. Clearly, technology. I mean, look, look at what we're doing. Uh, this is happening all over the world. Uh, uh, you know, digitalization of um, communications, of business and all is uh, it, it obviously won't be as extensive as it is right now, but it's something that's only going to grow. Uh, the uh, delivery services. You know, people are getting used to shopping online. They're getting used to uh, having Amazon deliver things to their house. And... Um, you know, it may, you know, bricks and mortar uh, stores and shopping centers and all we're having faced with some challenges already. Uh, I think that this may accelerate that. On the other hand, you look at things like um, the cruise business, which has just been hammered, uh, you know, at a certain point, and you, know, you could probably come up with, uh, you know, 20 different examples of this besides that, that industry. And I'm not saying that's something capital's looking at, I'm just speaking in general. The, um, uh, when, when this ends, people are going to want to get out there. They're going to want to go on vacation. They're going to, they'll be a little more cautious than before, perhaps. Uh, but demographics haven't changed. Uh, the, you know, number of people with resources who are moving into retirement and enjoying that kind of travel uh, isn't going to change. So I think there, there are opportunities to look at, um, you know, companies or sectors that, uh, have been somewhat beaten down uh, quite extensively as a result of this and, uh, and sort of see where they are. And by the way, if we're talking free money and you have a lot of renewables in the energy production area that uh, you know, need, need that money to start up, but once they get started can produce energy at a much lower cost, particularly a much lower societal cost, I think that's something to look at as well. So at Capital, we don't have a house view. So we all, we all have our opinions, and I just shared mine. And Howard, in terms of markets or specific sectors, what, what gives you the most optimism now, and what gives you the greatest pause? Uh, Jonathan, I think that, you know, uh, one of my favorite sayings is never forget the six-foot-tall man who drowned cro crossing the stream that was five feet deep on average. And, um, uh, you know, what is it that permits a company to get through uh, a low spot in the economy or in the stream? And I think, as one of my fellow panelists said it, is a low level of debt. The less debt you have, the easier it is to get through the low spots. The more levered up you are, it enhances your profitability when everything goes well, but it reduces your probability of getting through tough times. I think that we'll see that. Companies that are less levered 
will do better. Their future will be more assured. Um, as a result, there will be a brief trend toward using less leverage. Um, and then, uh, uh, you know, John was talking about people going back to the cruise ships. Uh, one of the outstanding characteristics of human beings is a shortness of memory. And uh, I think that uh, things will, uh, over time, maybe three, four, five years, will largely go back to the way they were. John? Uh, from my point of view, I think at national levels, there are no winners. There are only losers. It's only a question who lose less than others. Now, nobody's really winning from this uh, particular crisis. Uh, at the business level, however, you do see very big differences. We invest throughout the world. In our portfolio companies, we have about 150,000 people, 50, 150,000 employees, with about uh, 43,000 in China, about 54,000 in the United States, and with about 29,000 in Europe, and elsewhere 24,000 in the rest of the Asia. And we have very good perspective, snapshot of how business level is coping with uh, the current crisis. And I'll have to tell you, it's very interesting. For example, in some businesses in China, they're actually benefiting from the crisis. You know, we are a major shareholder of Tencent Music, whose revenue and EBITDA went up during this period of time in the first quarter. Why? I suppose when people stay home, they have nothing to do, they listen to music. We have the largest dairy farm business in China called Yuran, which has 280,000 cows. And EBITDA went up 46% in the first quarter. I have to speculate that people finally realized that milk it does better to your body. <laughs> That's why they increased the consumption of milk and milk prices also went up. And I fully agree with Howard that if you have little or no debt, then survival is not a problem. Damage is only temporary. You pull out of it, then you're on your way for recovery. For our businesses in the United States, unfortunately, by and large, the leverage level is much higher. And that is four times EBITDA, five times EBITDA. I actually don't see them reducing the debt level after this crisis because through the crisis, if we pull out of it, they will increase their leverage. They will have to borrow money to the maximum extent in order to have enough liquidity, enough working capital to pull through this. And that is a lesson to be learned in the future. At this particular moment, it's just piling more debt onto that. And those are the companies who are most worried about because they're stressed. If you look at how the coronavirus is affecting our portfolio companies, and that's very interesting. We have a very large sample. Again, worldwide, we have 150,000 people. In China, we have 43,000 people. Total of one infection back in February in Wuhan, who subsequently recovered, mild case. 43,000 people, one case of infection. In the United States to date, we have 54,000 people, 154 cases, and two deaths. Okay. In Europe, we have 29,000 people, 
23 infections and two deaths, both under the age of 30. So you, you get a sense that our sample is not small, you know, tens of thousands of people in all over the world. And in fact, we have a kindergarten business in China with tens of thousands of children who went back to work or went back to school and there's no single infection at all. So if you just look at this picture, you will know some countries will lack some other countries coming out of this because I, I received this data on our portfolio companies on daily basis. And I think after that, we'll have to think about that that level everywhere uh, in the world. The, the issue is in Europe and in the United States, that is just much more available than in China and rest of Asia. And that's why we have so little debt in Asia and so much debt in America. And going forward, even if that is available, we will have to be very prudent with it. Right. I mean, I think one of the results of this, uh, of this crisis is that um, in the corporate world, there are going to be big winners and big losers. I mean, some, some companies are well-managed and well-positioned, but, but it's also, there's a feeling that it will increase the disparity between the corporate haves. Can people hear me? Yeah. Okay. Between the corporate haves and the have-nots, as well as the, you know, the, the public haves and have-nots and the country haves and have-nots. Um, Howard, you know, there are a number of questions here in response to your, uh, your optimism about the, you know, well, it's perceived as optimism about the fiscal packages um, and, and the spending as to whether, you know, there won't be a, a, a negative impact on, on the dollar or on the, on the deficit. I mean, what is your, what is your feeling about the, uh, uh, the impact on the dollar amid all this spending? You know, uh, as I said, I really don't claim to know. It doesn't make any sense to me that you can pump out 10 billion in support, rescue, security buying, and so forth without having an impact. Uh, so number one, it, you spend money like that, it should have an effect. Number two, however, we're not, we may not outspend other people on a pound for pound or dollar for dollar per capita basis, in which case we will not out uh, degrade our currency. Maybe it'll remain in its current uh, situation. And lastly, you know, the, the uh, outcomes are very, very hard to predict. If you think back to August of 2011, when the uh, U.S. Uh, debt was downgraded for its profligate behavior, what happened? The interest rate on U.S. debt went down because, because people were so upset about the downgrading that they became afraid. When you become afraid, what do you do? You go to the dollar for, 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 for safety. It's called flight to quality. And when people put more money into U.S. treasuries, to obtain safety, that drives the interest rate down. So there are there are these paradoxical effects and 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 also unpredictable effects. And I'd be the last person to claim to know, but I it 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 seems illogical to me that you can do what we're doing without any uh, uh, ramifications. Right. Now this this crisis is full of paradoxes. Um, John, just. Uh, one quick question to you before I wrap it up with a question to all three of you. 
Um, you mentioned that regardless of the U.S. election, the tensions over trade with China will remain. But what other aspects, how do you see the election um, affecting, you know, will, will the, you know, will Biden um, help or hurt the recovery? I mean, how, in terms of the recovery, what's the influence of the, of the U.S. election, in your opinion? Well, uh, you know, Biden's been through it once before. He was tasked by uh, President Obama to uh, oversee both the bailout of the auto industry and the effort to recover from the global financial crisis. So he certainly has um, uh, the experience of having been there before. I think um, I'd look at the question another way, which is, um, uh, you know, we clearly know there's a lot of differences between the way Donald Trump approaches situations like this and the way Joe Biden, who's a true, uh, I think is deeply committed to the multilateral institutions that, um, you know, were, were a big part of peace and prosperity in the last 70 years, uh, would, uh, would engage with some of these things. I think that's, a, that's pretty clear. But um, what's, what's interesting is to look at what is not going to change in the, uh, in, in the United States. And uh, I think you will see uh, much more of the interpersonal leadership that, uh, that, that occurs when a president of the United States decides to get engaged in an issue. I remember um, in chatting with uh, President Obama, we hosted a G7, or Germany hosted a G7 during my time there. After that, and, you know, everything is so orchestrated beforehand in terms of the, you know, communique and all that. And I was asking him about that. And, and he said, he said, what's important about these things is, uh, number one, what happens in the side conversations, the meetings on the margin. But number two, it's pretty clear that nothing of consequence happens without the United States taking a leadership role, e even interpersonally. And um, we saw that with COP21. Uh, you know, we've seen that with some of these major trade agreements uh, and all. And so that, I think, will be a difference. But you're not going to see the United States backing down from issues like burden sharing. Right. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, you're not going to see a dramatic change in terms of uh, our approach towards, towards trade. Uh, and, um, uh, but I think you will see... Uh, much more of a collaborative effort with both friend and foe on areas where we have common interests to try to work together. And that's something that I think could possibly positively impact the economy. If I'm Donald Trump, and, uh, and, and I think this, the frame of this election has now changed dramatically. He's not running for re-election on the back of a strong economy. He's running for re-election in what will be a referendum of how did he handle these dual crises, the public health crisis and the uh, and the economic crisis. Um, I'm maybe hoping for uh, that second wave that Howard was mentioning maybe comes a little bit later. Uh, we get back to work a little bit earlier and I can campaign as the guy, look, I, I ran a pretty good economy. I'm the one to try to rebuild it. So I think you're going to see that uh, approach. But my, my sense is the prescription for how to rebuild it will be somewhat different coming from uh, the Trump campaign and from coming from the Biden campaign. Great, well, thank you very much. We have, to, we have to wrap up in the next couple of minutes. So I'd just like to go around the horn again. Um, unfortunately, with sort of a, 
um, uh, kind of a yes-no question or a short answer question, even though you've all made very clear that nuance is important in understanding and thinking about this crisis. So, Sean, starting with you, uh, because again, it's a very popular question, um, and it seems like all these analysts are scouring the alphabet and maybe multiple alphabets to decide and to predict what letter the recovery will look like. Um, do you have a prediction on that, or is there not a letter yet that has been invented to look like the recovery? Let's just focus on the U.S. markets. I think for the U.S. market, I don't expect V-shaped recovery. The reason for that is the crisis came at the tail end of the longest economic expansion in the world, I mean, in U.S. history for about 11 years. And you know, economies go into cycles. So after expansion cycle, next cycle is down cycle. We were just at the cusp of that when this happened. So demand was already weaker. Coming out of it, I think it will take a long time to recover, especially considering the fact that services represent about 70% of the US GDP. If you think about hotels, airlines, restaurants, entertainment, it will take a long time for them to come back. Compared with China, services represent about 40% of GDP. So uh, would you I, like I, to, perhaps you could pick a letter for the US and for China, which sounds like they're gonna be different. I, I think it's, it's hard to tell because it depends really on government actions. The US has used a lot of bullets and how much ammunition there is, uh, it's very hard to tell. Mm -hmm. um, for China, I think they have hardly used any tools, and therefore I would expect a U-shaped uh, recovery for China within this year. Howard, would you care to venture a guess? Yeah, I, I, I think for the U.S., I also see a U. Uh, you know, uh, the, the open question is the efficacy of the Fed, Fed and government programs. Right. Uh, but uh, you know, I'm not on. I'm not an optimistic guy in that regard. I'm not on the optimistic edge. So, I mean, I think there'll be a recovery, but I think that uh, my guess is that it'll take until 22 to get back to the earnings level uh, in the, on the S&P 500 of 19. Okay, thank you. And John, to wrap up, how, what's your uh, prediction? I'll go out on a limb here and say, I think it's gonna be more like a W because well, not a sharp W, but a, a slop, a W if you will, because uh, uh, I think, it, you know, when you look at the length of time it, when you talk to scientists that it will likely take for us to have not just a vaccine, but a vaccine that's been, that can be widely disseminated. Uh, and you look at the, uh, likelihood that we're going to have Singapore and Hong Kong type scenarios where you open up and then you got to close and open and close. I, I, my sense is it's, uh, uh, it, it'll, we're going to have some ups and we're going to have some downs. So it'll be more like a, a W, but of course there will be a recovery. Maybe it'll be a cursive W, so you'll have some loop-de-loops. Yes, that's it. We'll go uh, back and forth. That's all for this episode of Asia In-Depth. For more, you can subscribe to this podcast on Apple, Spotify, and YouTube. And check out our past episodes on our show page at asiasociety.org slash podcast. Thanks for joining us. I'm Michelle Florcruz. See you next time.